Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with We Go grads with unique careers and the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at We Go since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, class of 2020. Today, we talk to Austin Monroe, class of 2005, lawyer and partner at Brenner Monroe Scott and Anderson Law Firm in Chicago. Austin will share with us how an ear for argument in high school started him on the road to argue cases before judges and juries and even state appellate court. Joining us from the class of 2005 is Austin Monroe. Austin, could you tell us what you do? Hi, um, I'm a trial attorney. Our firm mostly does defense work. Um, I do a lot of medical malpractice defense. I do I do a lot of stuff, but I'm a, uh, I'm a I'm a lawyer. I'm a trial defense lawyer. Did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer? Like when you left West Chicago, you went to Linwood. Uh, is it a college university? How do they say it? it was yeah, it's uh, Lind- Lindenwood University down in uh, St. Charles, Missouri. Well, why did you choose to go to Lindenwood? So I I always thought I was going to be a basketball player, uh, and then I quit growing, and I decided, or then then I looked into baseball, thought I was going to play baseball. So I went there on a baseball scholarship. Is kind of how I ended up there. I really knew nothing else about the school other than it was it was pretty, and they let me play baseball. So. <laughs> So you so you went in with like a, an open mind uh, to Lindenwood. So well, okay, let, let's let's uh, pull on this thread a little bit longer here. What was it like playing baseball at that next level from high school? Yeah, it was it was kind of eye opening. You go from high school where the baseball team might be I don't even remember fifteen twenty kids um, that you you basically grew up playing with, and then you go down there and. Um, the, the rosters close to a hundred people. We had players from all over the country. Um, everyone was the best player at their high school. So, um, it's, it's very, very different. And and I loved it. Um, it it was nice. I had kind of a built-in group of friends immediately going to school. Um, but yeah, I, it, it, it was great. What were some of the places that you got to, um, to travel to with when you were on the team? Yeah, so the first weekend of the season, our, our opener, because we were in Missouri, there was usually snow on the ground. We'd start in February. We'd travel to uh, Mobile, Alabama. We always played, opened up down there in Alabama. And then uh, we typically would do like a spring break type trip. Um, I remember one we played in Miami. Um, and our conference was the – it was like heartland of the Midwest. So we played schools throughout the Midwest – um, I, I, a lot of them were kind of out in the Missouri, Kansas city, that, that border, that, that Kansas city border. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of cool places. You know, I was wondering once you get to that next level of talent from high school to then college, it, what, what seems to be the, the skill or position player that, it just becomes like more obviously better than everyone else. Is is that like, what does that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, so I was a pitcher, I was a relief pitcher. Um, and what, what, what stands out the most for um, the pitchers was the velocity, the speed they could throw at. Um, but not only that, it was the control. Um, they could put the ball where they wanted to. I, I could throw the ball pretty hard, um, and, and for my sophomore year, I was able to decide where I wanted it to go. Um, and, and 
by my junior year, I kind of lost that. And by my senior year, I ended up um, sitting that out to study for the LSAT and get ready for law school. Um, but it's just, it's um, just, just, they've finally sharpened their tool at, at a lot of the things they do. They can throw the ball hard, put it where they want. Um, fielders are able to hit. I, I don't know how they do it. Curve balls, the, the, the balls that are moving, they're um, going down, going up, all kinds of stuff. When did you start leaning towards law uh, in your in your uh, undergrad studies? So my dad is a lawyer as well. He does the same thing I do. Uh, we actually work together. Um, I, it was always in my mind, but I I really thought I wanted to go into medicine um, until I took human anatomy and realized the amount of uh, studying and just dedication to that um, that I just at that age I didn't have in me. Um, and so I, I, and at that same time, I think I might've done my first mock trial at West Chicago in one of our English classes. And, um, it just, just leaning more away from the sciences to, um, to, to the literature, the reading, the writing, the critical thinking. Uh, but obviously what I do now, I didn't get all the way away from, from medicine cause it's, uh, a lot of what I do too. So, so I, the, yeah, so the short answer is, um, it was probably around the time I was I was um, starting out in college, and um, honestly, I had I had doubts here and there, and would waver sometimes. But it, it was around college, freshman year of college, where I decided this was this was the road I was about to go down. What were some of the the classes that you had in your undergrad that that kind of gave you that momentum? Like, yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm pretty good at this. Or like my, I, that you felt that you had the, the skill set and the mind to be able to really go after a career in law. Yeah. So I, I majored in political science and I had a, I had two majors, political science and also public management. Um, and one, one of my favorite classes that the school offered was we would do a TV show on political books um, and it'd be a talk show where you would show up, the cameras would turn on, and for however long, you would just talk about the book, and you'd uh, be questioned about it and that type of thing. And um, just just the thinking on your toes, the critical thinking, analyzing the the book and the policy in it. And uh, I think that's kind of where I realized I'd, I'd like to do something in that realm. That class that you did, that TV show uh, exercise, sounds so much fun. That would be a blast. What were some of the favorite uh, books that you guys reviewed? Um, it was, it was everything from, um, I know I did a book on Fidel Castro. We did one on, uh, oil. Um, and we did just, just the idea that oil controls so much and we sit at the pump and we don't even see it. It goes right into our car. And we, I mean, unless we spill it on us, we can obviously smell it, but, uh, it's something we just never see. Uh, and, and just, um, separation of church and state, basic politics. And, uh, they, they could, you could take the class as many times as you'd like. Um, and with my schedule with sports and practices, um, it would, there was no in-person classes. You would show up. And if you did, I think it was five TV shows, you would get an A. So, um, I took that, I took that class as much as they'd let me until they kicked me out. <laughs> Uh, you know, one more question before we get into uh, your prep for the LSAT. Uh, I was wondering, how did you find the balance of being a student athlete? Because, I mean, you, it, no doubt that baseball, the training, the practice, and the travel and the games probably gobbled up a lot of your available free time. How did you find the right balance and kind of discipline to kind of schedule and map out your your day in, in such a way? 
Yeah, it, it was hard um, because not only was there practices, but um, we would be at the field in the morning taking care of the field so that it'd be ready for later in the day when we would practice. Um, there would be um, weightlifting uh, year-round. There was no breaks. Um, and then during the season, you'd be traveling. There'd be times where you'd be in a hotel Thursday through Sunday, um, and you'd you'd miss classes. This was, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but they weren't doing Zoom classes or anything like that. Um, you would just get an email from the prof- professor saying, "Here's here's what you missed, and uh, look over it." So um, it's it's it was hard. You have you, you I would I would bring materials to look at on the bus. Um, I would bring materials to look at at the hotel lobby during breakfast. Um, yeah, it was it, it was it was difficult, but um, it, it was manageable. The, the team also offered study halls and um, and that type of thing. So it was it was difficult, um, but but manageable. It's interesting because like you were really like that last generation of high school student that didn't have wi-fi everywhere you know like or where you could have just well there's a youtube video for that or i'll do Khan academy or like all these uh other things like you you really when you say you brought the materials like you really there was no smartphone you know really when you were there so it's just a uh you're like in my day i didn't have these things yeah back back in my day they chart they charged you for data if you wanted to look something up you had to be sure you really yeah you're right they charge you for every Uh, every web search it's crazy yeah yeah text text messages uh, it was not costly yeah text messages text messages used to be 10 cents a piece so Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I remember that. And, and how quickly that bottomed out, and now it's the data is just it flows. It's crazy. Yeah. All right. So you then uh, you prepped for the LSAT. Um, what was that experience like? How long did it take you to kind of feel comfortable enough that you knew that you were going to do well with that? Oh, n- never. Um, it's it's a very uneasy feeling. Um, I studied for it might have been three months, where it was basically a fifty fifty thing. Wow. Uh, by my senior year, I had. Um, stopped playing baseball. My shoulder, my shoulder was going, my fastball had slowed down and flattened out and people were starting to hit it. And it was just time to, time to move on. So, um, yeah, it was about half the time I'd spend studying for classes and the other half, um, I'd be studying for the LSAT and I would be taking practice tests. I, I remember I'd go, I'd find anywhere I could sit just to be in a different location. Cause it was almost, almost mind numbing. Um, and the hard thing with the LSAT is it's, um, very heavily weighted for schools on admissions and scholarships and, and that type of thing. So it, it, it became, it, it became almost like, like a part-time job getting ready for about three months. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, success, you passed. And how did you then, how did you select Penn State uh, for the next uh, uh, move in your uh, your law career? I mean, did you have other options or, or yeah. why, why did Penn State, uh, you know, why did you land there? Yeah, it was just, so when, once you uh, once you take the LSAT, the score goes into a database where all the schools can get it. Um, and, and I applied locally. I applied to Loyola, DePaul, Illinois was where I, I, I really wanted to go, um, the Big Ten schools. And um, Penn State wrote and said, it normally costs $50 to apply, but we'll waive that. You can apply for free. So I said, sure, why not? Um, and I didn't get into Illinois, which was 
um, pretty upsetting for me at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I got into a, most of my other choices. So it was just down to um, scholarship money and that type of thing. So um, it ultimately came down to either St. Louis University or Penn State. Those were the two that I got into and got um, the largest scholarship offers. And um, having been in St. Louis for the last four years and um, that being a school of about, it was about 10,000 kids. Um, I, I just thought it'd be exciting um, and interesting, something to draw attention to a resume. And um, I had never been there. I never visited. The first time I, first time I'd ever been to Pennsylvania was when I was moving into my apartment for school. So um, it was just kind of uh, as I don't know, either either dumb or lucky, but it ended up working out great. So <laughs> that is a big that's a big leap, though, right? So to kind of like you know th- that you know it would have been comfortable to have stayed in in St. Louis, but you know you 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 took that chance uh, to go to uh, to Penn State. What was it like going to uh, a, a Big Ten school with a student population that? probably quadrupled, you know, what you were at at Lindenwood or if not more, uh, what was it like to kind of scale up, uh, the, the, uh, the student population at a big 10 school? Yeah, it, it was, it was amazing. I loved it. Um, it was, it was a great time. Um, it, it, there was an adjustment because just like in sports, just like in baseball, when you go to the next level, everyone was the best at their school for baseball. You're, you now have a collection of the best players. You step into law school and you now have a collection of the smartest kids from their colleges. Um, so, we, yeah, being, being having never been to a, a big college um, and then now having to go into this competitive academic environment, it was um, there. There were some growing pains early on, learning to to balance that. So when you when you're at Penn State Law, how, how do you then begin to filter out your interests in law? Like how how do how do you? I mean, do you do, do they make you kind of ta- have a taste of all different types of law before you settle in? Like, what's the what's the manner uh, by which you're able to kind of find your area of interest and comfort and and, and really aptitude with law? So most subjects are kind of touched on on the bar exam. So you want to get a, a flavor for everything. And um, when you get to law school, at least at Penn State, almost all of your classes are decided for you for that first year. I think my first year, um, I got to pick one of my own classes and it and I had a choice of three different ones. Um, and then the second year, you got a little more freedom. And by the third year, um, you were you were picking your own schedule, so they they give you a taste of everything, and then um, kind of slowly let you wander around till you decide where you want to land. What was your favorite uh, uh, play? I mean, was there one that was different than the one that you're currently uh, practicing? That you're like, oh, it could have been that one, uh, but but you went one way. Was there a, was there a coin flip where your heart wanted to go with a particular field? Yeah, I, there's some really like um like constitutional law. There's some really heavy topics that are interesting to dive into, debate and really consider, but it's not at least based on what I know. Um it's not a lucrative or wide field um but but I from from the very beginning I knew I wanted to get into a courtroom setting. Um I didn't want to be um doing mostly um filings and uh, paperwork. I do a lot of that still, um, but ultimately, I knew I wanted to litigate. I wanted to be um, in front of a jury presenting cases. So that was something that you did 
at Penn State, you were part of the AAJ national trial team. What was uh, what was that like, and and what what were the type of trials and simulations that you guys did there? So they they give you a case. Um, it was actually a lot of law schools. Um, I think it, it might be across the nation. Um, everyone got the same fact set, um, and it was basically. Um, a hockey player with a misdiagnosis of a concussion. He's now suing for damages. Um, he can't play hockey anymore because the trainer um, putting the team's interests above the players put him back. It's a fictitious, well, it's roughly fictitious, but um, they, they put a guy in who shouldn't have gone in because he had a concussion. So um, you then have to put together, and, and they they gave you scripts for witnesses, and uh, but you had to put together an opening statement, um, trial examinations, and closing arguments. And then we went to Pittsburgh for our regional competition. And um, we, we presented the case. I was a defense attorney and there was um, someone on the plaintiff's side from another school. And it was like a, a real courtroom or it was a real courtroom. It was like a real court proceeding. And they had um, attorneys there who had volunteered to be the judges for that. So that was really nice. You you were also part of you did the environmental law review. Uh, what was what was your what were your responsibilities for that? Yeah, so in in law school, the law review is kind of the what you want to get on, what you want to have on your resume. Um, and there's a competition you write. Uh, they give you a topic you write, and then um, you make kind of like you make one of the teams. We had a handful of law reviews, and I made the environmental. Um, law review. So my first year, it's in addition to your classes, you work on um, an article in hopes of getting published um, in the school's school's law review. Um, I, I don't remember how long it had to be. It was like 50 or 60 pages. It was pretty long and it had to be researched and annotated. But um, mine was on um, Asian carp, the invasive species of the Asian carp um, and state's responsibilities. Um, it was back when they were talking about closing the Chicago canal, the one in downtown to um, try and protect the great lakes from becoming infested in it. And what would say Illinois liability be if um, I think it's Lake Erie in Ohio has uh, a major tourist. One, they have a lot of tourist income from their fishing. Oh yeah, I thought about that. So, so what? What? What can uh, Ohio do now to try and prevent this from happening? And what can happen, or what can they do if it does, say, ruin their their um, income from tourism? Can they have any recourse against the other states? So um, that that was something that I I, I really enjoyed doing. I, I thought the videos were really cool on YouTube of them jumping out of the, the water. So that kind of sparked my interest. Oh, those are amazing. But yeah. So um, but so but that got me thinking. How how could I write about this? And then um, the next year. I was an executive editor, and there was a group of uh, younger students that were writing an article on um, hydrofracking, where they inject water and solution into spaces underground that have natural gas to force out the natural gas so it could be harvested and um, the potential um, environmental impact of that if there's pollutants and that type of thing. So I, I, they wrote that article, and I worked as their editor to, to polish it up for publishing. Wow, so, which really kind of you know highlights the importance of how you are a, a very effective and efficient and sharp reader and writer. I was wondering, like, if like how do you how how do you 
kind of approach that skill set as a lawyer now to kind of keep yourself sharp? Or how did you kind of build the type of discipline and skill set to to maintain that level of precision in all things that you read and write? Because that's a really important thing that you have to be almost like a steel trap to be able to really see details, but then be able to articulate them very clearly. I was wondering how you, you might kind of um, respond to that idea of like how thinking, reading and writing all kind of converge as, yeah, as a lawyer. Yeah. So most of my time is spent reading and writing. Um, I do spend times at depositions, questioning witnesses. Um, rarely do we get into an actual courtroom and present at trial. A lot of it is the buildup to it, the the positioning and posturing through the reading and writing and analyzing of the case. Um, when I was younger, I I had a hard time sitting down and reading reading things start to finish if it was assigned to me. I felt like it was a task or a chore. Um, but once I started taking an interest in it and kind of um, investing myself in it and um, just taking an interest in investigating and putting together the pieces, um, that is really when I was able to dive into reading um, and writing and, and become more effective in that um, and, and, and really the, the end goal of all of it is to be persuasive. Um, it's not to accomplish something by saying I read it all, or I wrote this many pages, or I, it's, it's to be as effective and persuasive as possible. Um, and, and when, when you're reading, it's, you're, you're investigating, you're looking for clues and pieces that can put together and be used as, um, as, as weapons when you're trying to get someone on your side or get something that you're trying to, to have the court allow you to do or grant you. I, I love that. Uh, what you just said there, Austin, I, I've been teaching AP language for like nine, 10 years, I think right now. And uh, one of the things that I, I'm always obsessed uh, is precisely that idea of persuasion. And I was wondering, like, what do you think that you do that is, most persuasive when you are advocating for your position? And then what do you think you is then reflexively on the other side, something that you find works on you as a lawyer? Like, Oh, that actually kind of works on me. Like, and maybe they're both the same thing. Um, What, what, what do you see as like the most effective persuasion that you do? And then again, it might be the same thing that works uh, on you as well. Um, What are those things? Yeah. So the most effective thing is, is actually listening. Um, You've got to listen to what the people are saying and kind of read the room. And then once you've done that, you've got to decide how is this going to be best received um, it's kind of one, one of my favorite analogies is like uh, when Mike Tyson would box, um, he wouldn't go out and throw jabs just to throw jabs. He would time it um, and, and then just throw a devastating haymaker. Um, he would wait for his opportunity um, and, and and place it where place the punch where it needs to be to be the most effective. Um, so, so the best thing would be to listen, understand and or, uh, to listen and tr- try to determine how is this best going to be received um, to be beneficial for me. And also another thing is conciseness, being being direct. Um, it's kind of like a Tyson punch. I mean, it's direct and to the point. Yeah. Um, there's no beating around the bush or um, it just just be be um, yeah be thoughtful with the things you do and purposeful with the words to have them land in the best best way possible. 
it, 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 you brought up something else that's kind of interesting because this this seems to be something that transcends actual study and book learning and all that. You you mentioned that you have to read the room, and I was wondering, like, it, it maybe that is something that is taught, but that seems to be that's something that can only come from intuition and an observation and practice and experience. How, how did, how did you maybe develop that ability to kind of read the room? What are the things that you look for when you, when you do have to read the room? Um, so it's something that that's developed over time and I'm not, I'm not by any means a master of it, but I try to purposefully be slow to speak. Um, look at people, um, check their demeanor and listen to what they're saying. Because a lot of times the words people say will tell you what they're looking for, what they want you to say. Um, they're kind of giving you directions or hints. Um, it's just a matter of listening and trying to catch, catch on to that. Um, at, at de- I do a lot of depositions where I sit in a room and I get to question people about cases and or their backgrounds and their, the cases and what they think. Um, and a lot of it is is something that you wouldn't be able to read if you picked up a transcript. It's the tone in their voice, the the expression on their face. Um, it's it's just being as observant as you can and being present, present in the moment, and and um, yeah, yeah, being being considerate and purposeful with the words and your actions in response to what they're doing. You have to get ready for the the bar exam, and, it, and so what's the preparation? like for that. I I would imagine if the LSAT uh, was crazy, the, 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 the bar must've been that much more intense. Um, what was, what was the preparation for like that? And how long did it take you to prepare? And what was the actual administration of the test like? Yeah. So the bar, the problem with the bar exam is they only offer it twice a year. So if you don't pass, you are unemployed for the next six months or not unemployed, but you, you cannot apply as an attorney. Um, you're not an attorney for the next six months. Um, and then after that, um, you turn in your resume and, and they typically will catch like, oh, it looks like you had this six-month gap. Why is that? Oh, well, I didn't pass the bar and that type of thing. So there's a lot of pressure. And I, I was coming out of school with a, a significant amount of student loan debt, so I couldn't afford to not um, be working. So our school offered a class for our last semester to kind of get you ready generally for the bar. But I was in Pennsylvania and I was going to be taking the Illinois bar. So that didn't really, it, it wasn't as focused as I needed, but um, people sign up for, there's a couple different companies that offer programs um, where you, you, they give you everything you're going to need to learn uh, with lectures and videos. It's, it's just like class. You're having hour lectures on all the subjects and, you're taking practice test after practice test. And, um, the summer it was, it was all summer leading up to the end of the summer when you take the bar. Um, and during that time, um, I was clerking at the firm I'm at now, um, working half days and then, uh, in the city. And then the other half of the day I would clock out and study for the bar exam. And then I would go home, I would eat dinner, and then I would study for the bar exam until it was time for bed. Um, and I did that for, it was either two or three months. Um, and you take practice tests and, um, I, I, and I, I don't know if it's by design, but a lot of them, you're just barely passing. And it's kind of, I don't know if it's scare tactics to get you to push even harder. Um, but the, uh, the, the bar exam, uh, I took it at Loyola, um, downtown. It was a two day exam. 
Um, you're, you're there. It's a work day, nine to five one day and then nine to five the next day. Um, and then, and it was, it was actually a lot, um, a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. But I think it was because of, like I said, those tests were, um, just, I, I studied probably way more than I needed to, but I wouldn't take back any of it. It was, it was all well worth it. Um, oh, of course. but, um, yeah, so you take the test and then you wait, it's, it's at least a month, if not more, where you just sit and you don't know if you've made it or if you passed or not. And then um, just one day an email shows up that says you've passed and then you can breathe. Did, did you open it right away or did you kind of like see it and kind of walk around the room a couple times before you opened it? Yeah, no, I, I had like I had to open it. I I don't know. I, I had to open it. Um, I, I, I really didn't yeah. think I would fail, but I, there's always that chance. So. And, and you, I had a month or two to think about every question and second guess, um, my answers and there's an essay portion. So did I write the right things? And you, you, you just stew over it for the longest time. You pass, which is great. And, and so then what's your first job out of uh, law school? Where do you, where do you, uh, where do you take your services? Yeah. So I actually, I currently work at the firm, um, one of the, or the firm that my dad's at, he's one of the partners there. Uh, but I got out of school and they said, I'm, I'm sorry, we're not hiring because it was in 2012, the country was kind of coming out of a recession and just nobody was hiring. Yeah. And, um, I, I couldn't, it took me, I, I became an attorney. It took me a couple weeks and I just wasn't getting any interviews, but I find I've got a job. Um, it was at a two person law firm doing, um, defense of basically home and auto claims. So it was trial work, uh, but not exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and then about six months later, um, the firm, my dad's at that, um, I had clerked for, they started getting an influx of business and needed to expand. Um, so they offered me the position and, and I came over cause that's what, I mean, that's what I ultimately wanted to do. So, and, and I've been there, so, so that was, so that was 2013 and I've been there since. So, so the, the, the firms in the city, uh, do you live in the city? No, I, 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 under, I know some people love the city and that's just, it's never been me. I don't know if it was going to school in Missouri or, uh, rural Pennsylvania or what, but I'm, I live out in uh, sugar Grove about as far West as you can go and still catch a train. <laughs> oh, so you take the train out that way. So, all right. Yeah. I, so that at least you get some time to kind of unwind uh, on the train on the way in. So, um, so What's a so a, what's a typical day of work? So you got to take the early train in, and then you you uh, you show up. Uh, what's what's a typical day like for you? Yeah, so pre COVID, um, I'd normally get up a little before five. I'd be at my desk by about six forty five. Um, before the court shut down, we'd usually have court calls. We'd have to go over and in the mornings um, they were at like nine nine thirty ten at the daily center um, and. Uh, just tell the judge what's going on with the case, that type of thing. If we had motions for cases, um, because because with medical malpractice cases, they can take three, four, five years start to finish. So a lot of the time is just kind of working through discovery, production of documents, um, getting people's testimony, identifying expert witnesses. So um, so we'd usually do some kind of court in the morning. Um, I'd come back and I would look through. I'd, I'd um, 
because because your files, the cases are kind of living things that all need uh, care. They all need to be watered, and so you, you you're going through your summarizing medical records, your um, answering written discovery, which which is just written questions and uh, requests to produce. Um, and then, so you're caring for those cases, you're letting the doctors and the clients know what's going on with their cases. Um, and then usually in the afternoon, um, is when they'll do depositions. So you'll get the sworn testimony, um, of the, the parties, the, the treating physicians, the witnesses, the experts, um, you get those, you get their testimony, you get a chance to question them and you have that for when you go to trial. So there's no real surprises. So and then so, and, and and then I'm, and then I go home. So that's it. Uh, now do you do you completely like just unplug on the on the train ride back or do you do you have to keep on working? Uh I, I usually try to. Um the problem is is with cell phones now, uh it's it's constant uh with emails, checking emails, responding to yeah. emails. Um but if if I'm not working yeah, if it, yeah, if I'm not working, I try my best to to relax. Just a, a procedural question: When you say like discovery, I mean, how much can you verify that the other party will truly produce everything? Like, is I mean, how how is there a, a way to kind of confirm that that the good faith offering of all materials will be provided. Is there a way of checking that or wondering how you can confirm whether or not uh, everyone's really going to offer up everything in the act of discovery? Yeah. A, a, so lawyers are bound by rules of ethics um, that they got to abide by. And, and a lot of it is trust. And a lot of it in most cases that I have, it's not like TV. It's more of a collaborative effort between the parties to, to kind of let you, everyone's playing with their cards face up. Um, or mo- mostly, um, at least with f- fact discovery, not like they're experts and, but I, that's later on, but, um, yeah, it's a matter of trust. Yeah. Um, it's a matter of, um, kind of an openness and all, and also, um, kind of what I do during the day is I'm looking at things and I'm scrutinizing them. And if I find a hole, um, then I bring a motion with the court. I say, judge, this is what I found. Um, and it, it's, it's just a can of worms. Um, if, if a lawyer's found to purposefully be withholding stuff and, and things do get withheld, but it's usually just on an oversight or an accident or something like that. And, and the attorneys are usually pretty good at working together to get that all out there. Yeah. Cause I would imagine because there's so much new forms of communication, which could be things like obviously email, but then you have direct messages that are those also things that could be seized upon discovery, like all the other different kind of social media, um, like back channel communications. Yeah. As, as long as there's not a privilege attached to it, like if it's, um, you're talking to your lawyer or, um, there's a, a, a patient physician privilege. Um, yeah, communications typically are not, not protected. You, I can, I can get them in most cases. We've we've had um, Facebook Messenger um, things, text messages, email emails in all of our cases. Um, the the physicians they usually have some messaging system within their office where the front desk can write can, can take a call and write to the doctor. And um, so yeah, un- unless you're talking to a lawyer or a, a doctor uh, or a couple other things, it's it's 
communications are usually fair game, which is um, a lot. Of th- we we like phone calls. Those are hard to hard to keep track. Of. Or yeah, that sounds bad. But they're they're um, yeah. They, so um, yeah, we like phone calls just because it, it, there's nothing yeah. to produce well, after that. What was it like preparing for your first trial? I mean, like, so did you feel be- all of the work that you did, you know, debating in high school and then undergrad and then in grad school, did, did it just kind of feel like, oh, this is another day or was there still some butterflies? Yeah. So there's, there's all, I don't know if anyone, I, I'm sure there's very experienced attorneys that are, are comfortable, but um, for me, it's kind of like a, like a big game. Like you, you've practiced so much and, but there's still going to be some excitement um, go, going into it. So I know recent, or it was about a year ago, I argued before the Illinois appellate court. And, um, I mean, I was in a room full of other attorneys that had come to watch and there was a panel of three different, um, appellate court justices. And, um, I, I remember it's, it's, it's an excitement. It's, you can prepare all you want, but, um, yeah, it, it's not it's not nervousness, but it's an excitement that I, I don't know if it ever truly goes away. Um, and for for law school, not law school doesn't get you ready so much for actually working as a lawyer, but more to to think like a lawyer, to give you tools to act as a lawyer. Um, so when you come in, um, they they just they throw you in there. But it's almost like if you were a uh, like a physician, you have a residency period, a fellowship period. Um, you have a period where you're kind of being taught on the job. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's 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 a learning process, and I, I feel like it's at least me for a while. I'm I'm always going to be learning. I wonder if you could talk more about like the type of law that you practice, and like um, not that you you know would talk about the current cases that you're working on right now, but um, specifically when someone comes to you for your, uh, for your law services, uh, what, what's, what does that typically look like? So, so we're a trial, we're a trial firm, but we we're licensed to practice any type of law, but in, in, in law, there's no, um, no, firm specialties or not it's just the practice okay. tends to focus in a certain area based on um, their clientele so ours a lot of it is defense for medical malpractice so um, if a doctor has a patient who they treat and there's some adverse outcome and the patient files a lawsuit saying that what the care you provided me was negligent um, we then come in and represent the doctor um in that lawsuit. Now we've also, I've also worked on, um, construction cases. Um, I've worked on some auto cases. I've handled some plaintiff's cases where I represent people who have been injured. Um, but the, the vast majority is medical malpractice defense, whether it be doctors, um, chiropractors, um, nursing homes, um, that type of thing. You're still writing and presenting. What were some of the things that you've done recently with that? I saw that you co-authored a, a, a paper uh, recently or a report. Uh, what was that all about? Yeah, that was that was with my dad. We wrote an article on um, r- loosely based on a case we had where um, a, a chiropractor's patient suffered a burn um, from hot packs during a treatment, um, and that was for a uh, professional liability insurer, so someone that provides insurance and coverage to chiropractors. Um, I've also presented on, um, 
sexual harassment training. Uh, the state of Illinois for healthcare providers requires um, that type of um, continuing education. So I was asked to present um, on that just so that they could take the course and have that requirement satisfied. Um, I wrote an article on um, the COVID outbreak and potential liability for nursing homes. Um, those, those are cases we're starting to see um, these nursing homes have a lot of residents. And as soon as COVID gets in, um, what, what type of liability that are they exposed to? And the, the governor had issued a, an order with some type of immunity, but what, what does that actually look like in practice? And um, that, that type of thing. I think those are the, the ones I've written on recently. So uh, what's it like, uh, you know, working with your dad and on a, on a paper like that, or just also working in, you know, in the same kind of field uh, as, as your dad in, in the same office? What's that like? Yeah, I, I love it. Our, we share a wall. Our doors are right next to each other. Um, I, I've gotten so much um, that I don't think I otherwise would get in terms of training and experience and um, just, just the conversations we're able to have and the things he's able to share with me. Um, I just, just having that open line of communication, I, I don't think a lot of people have with their employer. Um, so I, I mean, I'm very grateful for that. Um, it, it has its downsides. People, um, tend to, it's for, for the positives, there's negatives of how people view it. And, um, sometimes how I'm treated or how, how things are looked at because of that, um, but it's the, the positives always are going to outweigh the benefits. And, and I, I love working with him. So, um, you know, what's, what's the next thing that in your position as, uh, as a lawyer, uh, is where do you go? Do you stay there? I mean, would you, or would you consider becoming a professor of law or like what, where would you see where it takes you, let's say in five, 10 years? Yeah. So in the last, I think it's been two years now. I was named a partner. So then from that point, it's um, you, you want to grow your business. You want to have cases of your very own that are assigned to you that you're the lead on that you're going to take from start to finish. So um, that that's what I'm doing. I have a couple um, and the goal is to get more and um, yeah, just, just keep getting better and providing the best um the best advice and best service that I can. Um, would I want to be a professor? I, maybe when I'm older, I don't know. Um, I've got, got a wife and kids and I, I, I think they, they'd say I'm already gone enough. Um, I, I've done webcasts. Um, I've done like the CLE for the sexual harassment or the, the continuing education for the sexual harassment. That was a webinar, um, that type of thing. I'd, I'd be happy to do those. Um, but a, a professor, I, I don't know. I was, I was the troublemaker in class. I don't, I don't know if they'd want me in charge of a class. At the end of uh, all the interviews, I always ask uh, the, the guests if you could provide some type of uh, advice for success or something along those lines for current Wildcats. Um, Austin, what, what would you say is something that has been a, a really good beacon of advice uh, or uh, some bit of advice that uh, would go very far for our, for our current students? Yeah. Um, when I was a third year law student, I had a class with a uh, an attorney who was a professor as well. Um, he was a big time partner, represented pharmaceutical companies in class actions in Philadelphia. Um, I looked at him as he's, he's made it. 
Um, and I, my third year, I had to take out a loan for groceries. I was out of money and just broke. Um, I was drowning in bar exam prep. And um, that professor said, uh, what, he, he said, you need to enjoy this, uh, this moment you're in in your life. Because what happens is if you continually are just looking forward, saying things are going to get better as soon as I get a job. The problem is, is you get a job and you realize, oh, I'm at the bottom of the totem pole. I need to work my way up. Things are going to be better by the time I'm a partner. By the time you're a partner, you're going to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm a junior partner. Things are going to be better by the time I make it and, and so on and so forth. And he says, you're always looking forward instead of living in the moment. And by the time you get to the end that you think is where you're going to be happy, it's all over. You're retired and you're old. So, um, I mean, my advice is to enjoy enjoy every stage, uh, whether it's high school, college, um, post high school, whatever it looks like, um, because you're ultimately going to look back. I was broke uh, my third year of law school, but I look back and I had no bills because they weren't charging me yet for my student loans. Um, I was young enough I could eat whatever junk food I wanted. Um, it was it was. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could stay out late and have no problems the next morning. I could hang out with friends whenever. And, um, it's just, there, there, there's certain things that you're going to look back and say, you know what? That was great. So that, that'd be my advice is enjoy every single step. Well, Austin, thank you so much, uh, for your time today. I've, this is going to be so great for everyone to hear about your path towards being a successful, uh, lawyer. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can follow We Go Places on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Just search We Go Vox, that's We Go, V-O-X, or search on Facebook for We Go Places Podcast.